You will have read in your biographies that Christoph Chalamet is professor of systematic theology at the University of Geneva. He is, in fact, a native of that city and studied at its conservatory of music there before turning to theology, I guess, simultaneously. Good. He um, has been a longtime friend to Princeton Seminary, has been a member of the, the team of scholars that I assembled to uh, participate in a consultation on a biannual basis with Dutch theologians uh, at the University of Kampen and now at the Protestant Theological University uh, at the Free University in Amsterdam. Um, he wanted me to mention that he has a forthcoming book, A Most Excellent Way on Faith, Hope, and Love, which be, is being published uh, by Lexington Books. He also has, which isn't on your list, um, edited a volume on uh, recent developments in Anglophone Trinitarian theology, which is well worth a read. Um, very good contributors to a conference you put together. Yeah. So, Christoph, welcome back to Princeton, and um, we look forward to what you have to tell us. Thank you to the organizers of this conference for their invitation. It is an honor and a joy to be a part of it. If when I began studying theology 27 years ago, someone had told me I would eventually be giving a lecture at a theological conference in Princeton, New Jersey, I would have laughed heartily, and something in me still wants to laugh. <laughs> My paper is titled, Redemption of This World, and I guess the subtitle has shifted a bit, Reflections on Eschatology in Light of Bart's Dogmatic Lectures in Münster. 1925-1926, and I have another subtitle that I just added also recently, or Curb Your Enthusiasm, <laughs> to a point. How should we understand the notion or the reality of eternal life? How should we conceive the traditional theme of the Last Judgment? Does the New Testament witness support the view of a final reconciliation, or perhaps better, a restoration of all things? What should we do with the apocalyptic imagery we find in the New Testament? And how do traditional pronouncements on the last things in Christian theology relate to what the natural sciences predict concerning the cosmos? What is the church called to proclaim with regard to the end of all things? Each of these is an important and difficult question. This indicates the many challenges a Christian reflection on eschatology is bound to face today. And this shows, I would say, that we need to think together as Christians on these matters, confronting our respective insights and interpretations. Could it be that Karl Barth's insights on this theme, on these questions, may be of help for us today? Before we answer this question together, we need to get a sense of what he said. This is no easy task since we do not have his views on this in the works of his maturity. But still, 
there are important insights which can be gleaned from various stages of his career, including his late writings. In what follows, I will focus on Barth's so-called Göttingen dogmatics, which culminated starting at the beginning of November 1925 and ending in the last week of February 1926 with academic lectures on the doctrine of redemption, die Lehre von der Erlösung. Barth gave these lectures as at the University of Münster, where he had just begun his work at the time. I forgot to mention I'll have three parts. The first one is titled Christian Eschatology Among Discourses Concerning the End. Second one, This World, The Direction of Christian Eschatology. And the third, The One Who Comes is Its Object on Christian Hope. So Christian Eschatology Among Discourses Concerning the End. We live in a world in which we are bombarded by the narratives coming from the natural sciences concerning the beginning, the evolution, and the ultimate destiny of our world. It is not easy for Christians and for Christian theologians to know how to articulate the traditional Christian views concerning the end with what the natural sciences tell us. Should we adjust the Christian discourse to what these sciences teach us? Bart suddenly shows us a different direction. As he saw it, Christians, of course, live in the same world as the rest of mankind. They do not find themselves in a holy enclave, but rather, quote, on the same playing field on which these other eschatologies formulate their claims, end of quote. Barth speaks of other eschatologies, and he has in mind four different kinds of discourses about the end. It's a rather brief section in the opening pages. First, there is what he calls an eschatology which is simultaneously philosophical in the sense of a philosophy of history, and sociological. Geschichtsphilosophische soziologische eschatologie. A mouthful. This kind of eschatology may envision an improvement of human societies, of the state of the world, perhaps in the footsteps of Karl Marx, or, like Oswald Spengler, it may announce the coming or the present ruin of human civilization. Second, there is a geological astronomical eschatology, eine geologische astronomische eschatologie, which focus on, focuses on the million year history of our planet. Today we'd say on its billion year history. Here, unlike with one of the variants of the philosophy of, of history, optimism does not bloom. For in the cosmos, quote, becoming is always followed by decay. Nur werden und vergehen. 
And so the moon shows us in advance what lies ahead for our planet. The third type of eschatology, of these other eschatologies, is the parapsychological one. And here Bart has ancient divination, as well as Rudolf Steiner and his anthroposophical movement in mind. Here people search for the contemplation of other worlds, beyond the limits of our world. And it's true that there's some uh, very intriguing works done by Rudolf Steiner. I'll quote just one title, Wie erlangt man Erkenntnis der höheren Welten? The way of initiation, in English translation, the way of initiation, or how to attain knowledge of higher worlds. Published in 1908 in English, 1904-05 in German. And also, just a quick note on Steiner, in the spring of 1920, Steiner founded a cooperative business association named Der Kommende Tag, The Coming Day. And another association, that same year, 1920, named Futurum. Having briefly presented these four types of eschatological discourses, and having mentioned the eschatological myth which lies behind and sustains each of them, Bart adds, what I have announced under the title eschatology as the theme of this nota bene theological lecture course has essentially nothing to do with these four possibilities of eschatological discourse or with the eschatological myth. End of quote. And yet, as the Christian discourse on eschatology concretely unfolds, quote, nothing is easier than to dissolve Christian eschatology in the elements of one or the other of those eschatologies and ultimately to dissolve it into all of them, end of quote. A very interesting distinction appears here between the playing field upon which Christian theology stands and works alongside other discourses which claim its attention and which tend to pervade its own discourse, on the one hand, and the essence, Wesen, of what Christian theology has to say. With regard to its essence, eschatology in Christian theology has a different origin, a different meaning, a different sense of truth and reality. All of this is part of what essence means. Origin, meaning, truth, reality. Bart is interested in presenting the specificity, eigentumlichkeit, of Christian eschatology. His lectures focus on Christian eschatology proper, one could say. This in itself is not surprising coming from Karl Barth but it is highly interesting. In the contest of narratives concerning the end, Christian theology should not shy away from articulating its own vision, its own conviction. Does that mean that Christian eschatology should not enter into a dialogue with these other eschatologies? Barth thinks it should not. Quote, 
they are so different that a comparison, a discussion between these eschatologies and Christian eschatology is from the get-go impossible. Here, I think Bart might have gone too far. Yes, these various eschatologies are radically different, distinct. But does that mean a comparison and a dialogue is impossible? Hardly, I would say. And it is arguably one of Bart's shortcomings as a theologian not to have been interested in such a dialogue not a dialogue which seeks convergence at all costs or which adjusts theological discourse on results in the natural sciences in order to buttress theology's legitimacy among the fields of knowledge, but a dialogue which examines the respective points of departure, methods, senses of truth and reality, as he puts it, and the claims or results of the various disciplines or approaches at hand. Bart's refusal to consider dialogue between theology and the sciences as an important, indeed inescapable and fruitful aspect of theology should not be part of what theologians retain from Bart today, in my opinion. Second part, this world, the direction of Christian eschatology. Things stand with Christian eschatology more or less as they do with the doctrine of the atonement, the direction of the discourse concerning the end, just as with the discourse concerning reconciliation, does not go from the world to God, but rather from God to the world. It is not God who needs to be reconciled with the world, but rather the world which stands in need of reconciliation. The same is true, I would say, of the final redemption. It is the world which awaits and needs it, not God. We touch here, as I see it, on a decisive strand of Bart's theology, and more specifically, specifically of his eschatology. To express this, Bart was even ready to quote one of the theologians he particularly disliked, Ernst Trolsch who had concluded his 1912 masterpiece on the social teachings of Christian churches and groups with the following claim, quote, das Jenseits ist die Kraft des Diesseits. Transcendence is the power of imminence. Bart was fond of this quote, of this sentence, which appears in his early writings, Tambach, as well as in his late works, and in the Göttingen dogmatics, we'll find it in a moment again. Why was he fond of it? Because I think it holds together what constitutes the very substance of Christian theology, namely God and the world, attributing effectivity or efficiency to God in relation to the world. It is not the world which determines who God is or what God does, but the other way around. God is the force, kraft, or power of our worldly reality. Trolch knew it already. It is a short-sighted, superficial critique, kurzsichtige Gegner, which deems faith in divine transcendence as unavoidably leading to a devaluation of the world and of worldly existence. 
This superficial critique is, of course, still very much with us, as can be seen from very recent publications by respected academics. I have in mind Martin Heglund's This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, published last spring, This Life. We all remember the heart of Jesus' message. The kingdom of God has come near, repent, and believe in the good news, metanoiete, kaipistoiete, entoi euangelioi. The coming of the kingdom is supposed to have immediate consequences for human beings who are called to change their ways of thinking and trust or place their confidence in the good news. The power of transcendences coming into this world is a power which has implications for this life of ours. Some will say, we know that's the case for God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ, but what about eschatology? Isn't eschatology the final overcoming of finitude as creatures are taken up into God's realm? Isn't this the way the Apostle Paul described creatures' ultimate destiny? I should say critters, maybe following. Doesn't Paul write in 1 Thessalonians 4, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It is images such as these ones which have given rise to the recent, and I wrote in my paper current, but I don't know about that, frenzy among some evangelical Christians concerning the rapture. Bart was not interested in vivid speculations about being caught up in the clouds and urged his readers to curtail any inclination to bombastic apocalyptic visions. In his lectures on eschatology given at the University of Münster, he invites, he urges his students to maintain an attitude of sobriety, zurückhaltung. Christian eschatology, quote, does not take any part in the eagle flight of contemplation and consideration of transcendent truth and in the fantasy game with which myth greets such a flight. End of quote. Later in his mature thought, he was keen to contrast certain supernatural magical notions, miracle, which pertain to mythological views on the one hand, and on the other hand, quote, the mighty activity of the Holy Spirit. CD 4.3, second part. Already in the first edition of his commentary on the epistle to the Romans, he stated that the Spirit, as the force of the new world, is not in the process of annihilating the world. He quotes Hermann Kutter, who says, the spirit is not a kaputmacher. It is not sent to destroy, nor to simply maintain what is. The spirit aims at a radical transformation, radikale verwandlung, a radical transformation of our world. This is how the spirit, which is intimately associated with the perfecting of God's act and intent as creator, operates in our old world. 
And just as the nearing of the kingdom immediately leads to the call to renew our mind and place our faith or trust in the good news, the radical transformation which is enacted by the Spirit calls for an active participation from the part of the human creature in God's own struggle, kampf. These are important aspects of Bart's theology around 1917, 1918, as he finalized the first edition of his commentary on Romans. Bart, of course, did not cease to place a strong emphasis on the coming of God to renew this world, to fill this world with new life, as he puts it in Romans, in the first edition. Not just in re relation to reconciliation, but also to redemption. For him, 40 years before Jürgen Moltmann's theology of hope, eschatology is not a sort of, quote, last small chapter, simply juxtaposed alongside other things. Rather, eschatology, like any, he writes, like any genuine dogmatic topic, very interesting, must determine, must shed light on all the other topics. Not just eschatology, but eschatology, like any genuine dogmatic topic, must determine, must shed light on all the other topics. At the same time, isn't it the case that creation ultimately is renewed in order to participate in God's life? If that is true, then should we not also speak of a movement in the direction of God's reality and not just of God's coming to renew this world? We can understand why some are hesitant to speak of this movement in the direction of God, since it may bring us a bit too close for comfort to certain Gnostic theories of redemption. And you may remember this very well-known passage from a letter by Bonhoeffer to Betke from June 27, 1944, on redemption. Maybe I'll read this. It's a, it's a fairly well-known passage. The redemption myths look for eternity outside of history, beyond death. It is said to be decisive that in Christianity, the hope of the resurrection is proclaimed, and that in this way, a genuine religion of redemption has come into being. Now, the emphasis is on that which is beyond death's boundary. And precisely here is where I see the error and the danger. Redemption now means being redeemed out of our sorrows, hardships, anxieties, and longings, out of sin and death in a better life beyond. But should this really be the essence of the proclamation of Christ in the Gospels and Paul? I dispute this. The Christian hope of resurrection is different from the mythological in that it refers people to their life on earth in a wholly new way and more sharply than the Old Testament. Unlike believers in the redemption myths, Christians do not have an ultimate escape route out of their earthly tasks and difficulties into eternity. Like Christ, my God, why have you forsaken me? They have to drink the cup of earthly life to the last drop. And only when they do this is the crucified and risen one with them. And they are crucified and resurrected with Christ. This worldliness must not be abolished ahead of its time. 
On this, the New Testament and the Old Testament are united. So it's a letter from June 27, 1944. Life with God is indeed reciprocal. It is two-sided, as it involves two partners, God and God's creation. The finality of the gospel is no other, I would suggest, than the fulfillment of the covenant formula we encounter throughout the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The first part of this sentence, I will be your God, can be interpreted as entailing God's movement and action toward the world. Whereas the second part, you will be my people, expresses the movement of the creature in relation to God. Just as God says, enter into the joy of your master. Does this mean we leave the world behind? No, for God's covenant includes all of creation. And if this covenant has an ending on our side as finite beings, it does not on God's side, and God's commitment to God's creation is unceasing, irrevocable. Christian eschatology concerns, simply stated, the fulfillment of this covenant, which involves this world and not another world, which might lie behind or beyond this world. Barth makes it very clear in his 1926 lectures in Münster, I quote, Redemption does not mean that the human being goes to another place. The world of God in which the human awoken from the dead wakes up is no second world, no metaphysical backstage or overarching world, even if it may often be unavoidable to speak of it using expressions which present it as if it were something like that. The world of God is this world, this heaven and this earth, but both having passed and having become new. The space of redemption of eternal life covers exactly our space, even though, or rather precisely because, it is the space of redemption of eternal life." End of quote. God only has one world this world of ours. This is the world with which God makes a covenant, the world God creates and redeems. Redemption means the redemption of this world, this world renewed, transfigured, redeemed. Whether we speak of creation, reconciliation, or redemption, it is always, it always concerns God's action in relation to this world. The there of God's realm will ultimately cover exactly our here. That's the geographical way of putting it, but of course you can use, and Bart uses, temporal images in many instances with the same intention, namely to show the intimate bond between the then to come with our now or our today. And here I quote from a passage found in CD 4.1, 1953. But it is clear again that in this form too, as a concrete possibility, the promise reaches into every present. 
of the justified man. It is today, today, that it stands before him as the future. Therefore, it is today, today, that it can and should be affirmed and seized and apprehended and put into effect as such. It is today, today, that its content, the great hope, can and should be lived. The power of the world to come as the power of this world. Die Kraft der Jenseits, as die Kraft des Diesseits. The Trolch, the, the Trolch sentence reappears here. The emphasis Bart wishes to place on our today is impossible to miss in this passage. Today, today, three times. God's promise is directed toward our today. It shapes our today, it orients it. The promise, moreover, begs to be put into effect, as he puts it. If the promise consists in a communion with God, with a relation face to face, and a joy-filled relation, then what does that mean for our world today with its brokenness? But, puts it here and there, we are not called to bring an end to evil. He says that notably in Amsterdam in 1948. We are not the ones to change this evil world into a good one. God has not resigned his lordship over it into our hands. But we are urged to work for justice and in the service of our fellow human beings. The great hope needs to be put into effect. It wants to be lived today. My third part, the one who comes is its object on Christian hope. Hope is not a final information, but a foundational beginning, right bots. Right spot. Hoffnung ist nicht eine letzte Auskunft, sondern ein prinzipieller Anfang. Christian hope does not emerge at the end of a reflection on the future, not even on God's future. Christian hope does not first try to answer the question of the state of our world and its ills in the face of the reconciliation achieved in Christ. Christian hope begins not with a question or with questions, for instance, on the supposed delay of the parousia or on the undeniable fact that we will all, just like all human beings and creatures before us, eventually return to dust. It begins with the answer, which gives rise to the question. And this answer is the coming of Jesus Christ and his reconciling work. Already in 1926, Bart speaks of the necessary rigor and concentration, strenge und Konzentration, of eschatological discourse on the figure of Jesus Christ. And he takes this quite far. The whole point, he writes, of Christian hope is to await him, nothing besides him, for there is nothing besides him. Bart writes in an almost Christomonist fashion in 1926. 
rather than in an explicitly Trinitarian fashion. The context in which Bart makes this claim shows that this is in fact meant as a reminder that the point of redemption is not the satisfaction of our desires, of our wishes, including our wishes for a sort of infinite prolongation of our existence, of our own survival along the lines of our present life. An infinite prolongation of our existence sounds hellish to some. Again, Martin Heglund, this life. And rightly so. A participation in God's own joy and life, on the other hand, in a life which is utterly renewed and transformed and healed. As Jesus was utterly transformed and renewed in his being raised and awoken to new life, is a wholly different matter on which we should not speculate too much. Here, too, a certain bendigung des enthusiasmus, curbing of one's enthusiasm, is the sign of sound eschatological discourse, or the sign that we are still thinking about Christian eschatology. Jesus himself, but reminds his students of that, did not know the day or the time. But we should not curb our enthusiasm to the point of omitting to consider the meaning of the end as one of joy. Here, finality is a joyful one, as befits the finality of a good news. The images of the wedding banquet, of a feast, point in this same direction, of a joy, God's joy, God's own feast, in which we are invited to partake. A life lived more or less radically, more or less constantly in faith, is now marked by sight, by seeing face to face. The ultimate horizon for this world and its creatures is the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam, to Abraham. This promise can be summarized as follows, I will be your God, you will be my people. The promise of this face-to-face -face implies that the horizon of Christian hope is not a thing, is not a theory, is not a concept, it is God. Eschatology concerns an eschatos, we've heard it right from the first paper at this conference, the ultimate one, rather than eschata or eschaton, any ultimate thing or things. In this face-to-face, -face, which lies ahead of us, even as we already live in its anticipation, the time of dialectics, time of paradox, of yes and no, of veiling and hiddenness, will be over. This Mozart had understood in his own way, illustrating it through his music and throughout his music. Mozart, in Bart's opinion, had a place not just in a discourse on creation, but in Christian eschatological discourse. The horizon of all creation is one of joy and of communion, Gemeinschaft, in God. Here's how Bart put it near the end of his doctrine of reconciliation, and this will serve as the conclusion 
of my presentation. I'm quoting. What the human person who hopes as a Christian sees ahead and awaits is not twilight. It is not light and also shadow, good and also evil, salvation and also disaster. It is unequivocally and in an unbroken way, light and goodness and salvation. For the one whom he sees before him is in an unequivocal and unbroken way, God, the living God in his grace and righteousness and mercy and glory, the God towards whom he can go, not with a mixture of confidence and suspicion, but only with confidence. CD 432-907-908, in case you wanted the reference. I hope to have shown that this vision of unambiguous light, goodness, and salvation, as much as it may look to some like the product of wishful thinking, is in fact the very heart of Christian hope, a hope which ought not distract us from our today, our here and now, with all its challenges. A hope which, however, orients our thinking, our living, our struggling to, so that our world today may become more attuned to this vision of God's peace and light. Thank you.